production. Want to learn how to feel good whilst attracting what you want into your life? I have designed a course for you using the manifesting methods I use daily. This is an audio course, so it can be easily listened to in the car, going for a walk or on your daily commute. And I've designed printable worksheets with exercises to help you practice what you're learning. All the info on the course is in this episode show notes, or you can go to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com to purchase Manifest Your Greatness. Podrick Otuma is a poet and author. We turn to Podrick to help us understand the puzzle of being ourselves, of rising to our best capacities and gifts in all of our complexity and strangeness. Podrick's writing explores the timeless relationship of human beings to their world, to creation, to others, and to the end of life itself. This conversation shines a spotlight on growing up homosexual in an unaccepting environment, the beauty and darkness of religion and hope, and the power we all possess to create the change we need and desire. A question about, like, what does it mean to be human? That's an interesting question, because ultimately I think it, it involves a, a lived life in response to it. I do love the question, do you believe in God? But it depends as to the tone and the love with which the word you is said. If you is said in a hostile way or in a threatening way or in a trapping way, well then, it's a very boring question. But I love the question, do you believe in God? Because it invites a response from a life. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Podrigo Tuma is the author of many books, including Poetry Unbound, 50 Poems to Open Your World and Feed the Beast. At its essence, this conversation is about regaining control of the stories we're telling because they are shaping the future we're creating. Remembering our deepest inspiration, healing our pain and apathy, and connecting to each other like never before. Podrick is sweet and caring and has an extraordinary mind. May this episode bring healing, believing, and belonging to all those that need it. Podrick, you grew up in South West Island. Tell me a bit about your upbringing. So I grew up in Cork in a village called Cargilline, about 10 miles outside Cork City. I am number three of six kids. It was a fairly ordinary, very heavily Catholic childhood. I was born in 1975. So I had interest in music as a kid, I still do, and language, speaking Irish and English. And I always loved poetry. I was from a family also, though, where science was the main aim. Both my parents had left school at 13, and so they were determined that all of the kids would get jobs in th- that they, you could keep for life. And as far as they were concerned, that was in science. 
So tell me, that's interesting coming from such a Catholic background that science was the number one yeah. thing. So many of the astronomers over the last 400 years were Jesuits, you know. Yes. The, the Catholicism has its own fundamentalisms, but biblical inerrancy isn't one of them. Yes. <laughs> so no, the, the relationship between science and Catholicism is absolutely a very easy one. It never occurred to me, like when I met people, other people from other parts of the Christian universe who, um, who took biblical texts literally. Literally, I found it bewildering and almost amusing. Yes. So it had never occurred to me that science and religion were, were anti each other. Tell me a bit about having Catholicism as a big part of your life. How did you infuse that in your day to day? The national school system was a Catholic school system. You know, the priest was part of the, the board of governors and there was, certainly when I was growing up, it changed maybe when I was about 11, but religious holidays were off as well, you know. But also there'd just be an announcement through the thing that there was going to be a school mass and everybody would wander down to the school hall. There'd be a school mass and, you know, sacramental education was done through the done through school. So in that sense, the question as to personal devotion was was up really to the child or their family. But Catholicism was absolutely throughout the entire education system, you know. Um, it's fascinating, you know, and I can see the constriction of that and the danger of that as well as there's something really interesting about belonging to a narrative because it's a really good thing to have a really good reason to leave a narrative, yes. you know, whereas I, I sometimes see people who aren't sure what they think of religion, whereas where I'm like, I definitely know what I think of religion. I know what I hate about it. Do you know, I know what I find objectionable about it. I have opinions, I have knowledge, I have history, I have experience, you know. So my fantasy children are all brought up Catholic so that they can leave and have a good reason to leave. Yeah. What did you and do you like about the Catholic religion? What I like about religion is ritual, you know, um, like lots of us have been bereaved a lot in my life and then especially over the last number of years. And I have been to some of the most extraordinary funerals um, and a beautifully held funeral mm. by somebody who knows how to hold ritual, who can hold the story of a life within a sense of not pretending that grief isn't there, but no, nonetheless um, curate a community of people in the display of their own grief and somehow to even the initial comfort that can be present to each other. I think religion is extraordinary at that. When it's done well, obviously, it can be done poorly too. So I think that can be a powerful thing. There's something about being connected across centuries. You know, I read a lot of Midrash, the kind of almost psychoanalytical commentary on the Hebrew Bible that's thousands of years old. And being grounded and reading Midrash just makes you feel like, you know, we like to think we're sophisticated in 2023, but people have been asking psychoanalytic questions about text for thousands of years and recording them down and asking them and unfolding them and applying their brain and thinking the word God is just a noise. Like, let's ask a deeper question. Let's ask something more. Let's ask a damn fine question. I like being peripheral to religious traditions, I think, because it links you across millennia of thought. And I think it spares you or it, it's a counterpoint to the arrogance that just because we're modern, we're modern. There's a nice belonging, I think, as well with religion. People belong to a certain yeah, community. I mean, belonging's got a good side and a bad side. Yeah. <laughs> People like to belong to certain things. They yeah. might belong to their chess group or a yeah. sports club or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a nice belonging that happens within these different communities, which I think is really nice. Yeah. And also, I agree with you, it's really interesting when you see someone die and how religion then comes together to totally. form that person's burial and oh, the yeah. traditions around that. I think that is an absolutely sacred thing. I always 
you know, for me, I'm Jewish and when we're at the burial site and you listen to the prayers, there's something so comforting about that, Mm -hmm. that I think even when people don't look at themselves as being overly religious or anything, when you're at that place, suddenly you feel very connected and it's a very comforting thing. Yeah. And there's something about being part of a tradition that says we're not frightened of death, especially in the bewilderment of being grieved and bereaved yourself. Like in the Irish tradition, people would typically be buried pretty quickly, you know, after you die, that there'd be certainly in Belfast where I live, there'd be a rosary in the house at night. The body would be in the home. The body wouldn't be left alone. People would stay up through the night. The first thing you do if you come in to visit the home is you bring food and you go to see the body first, of course. The body's there the whole time and then it's removed. And a month later, there's a mass called the month's mind that is just marking the first month since the death of that. And then, of course, the year later, too. And it's an old phrase in Irish, um, I pray for you today and a year from today, which is kind kind of an indication when somebody is bereaved that you're committing to being a consolation and a friend to them, not just Mm. today in the first day of death, but throughout the first year of death. So all of that, those old traditions, I mean, that's that's something, nothing takes away the sting of shock and pain and grief, but small comforts can be big comforts like Mm. that. So I have huge respect for that. And in that sense, I'm very religious on a practicing level, Um, but I I don't think you need to believe in God in order to practice uh, those kinds of levels of humanity. Absolutely. And I wonder for you, obviously you grew up in Ireland during quite a tricky time. Can you tell us a bit about that? There was a bit of conflict going on then. There's deep conflict. I mean, the British have been in Ireland for 800 years. And the question as to what the British in Ireland, what power the British in Ireland have has been a complicated one. I have been one of the people over the last, one of the many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the last number of years has worked a long way as part of peace organizations and community mediation and dialogue and in process change and working in schools and stuff like that. I trained in conflict resolution, so I had an interest in, in how it is, how I could play one small part of an entire peace industry of, of peace and dialogue there. How's everything there now? As tense. Brexit really has thrown it up in the air. Um, yeah, because Britain really, the, the, the peace agreement in 1998 was, was built upon European Union law. And so by Britain removing itself from European Union law, it has, um, it just it just seemed a slap in the face of a British-Irish peace process internationally ratified and binding. Um, so that's just caused huge discord in community. Um, our parliament in the north of Ireland hasn't really sat for much of the time since Brexit. It collapsed a number of months later. So that's le- led to huge kind of civic difficulty and enormous. This is true in many places, but in our situation, it's true in a particular way. Enormous lack of trust in, in the political mm. mechanisms. And so, yeah, we're, we're mostly run by civil servants at the, at the moment. Um, so we literally have not had a sitting government in the north wow. of Ireland for for much of the last n- number of years. That's yeah. incredible. Going back to your childhood, I want to talk about the fact that when you were young, you realised that you were gay and how that worked within the Catholic religion 
Yeah, I mean, I knew, I suppose, from the age of the other lads were getting interested in girls. I knew that mm, I'm not. And I definitely was, I was in a, an all boys school that were always, were all, everybody was calling each other a faggot or whatever, you know. So those, oh, yeah, that kind of language was always yeah. in the air. And I suppose I, that kind of, you knew it was an insult without knowing what the insult yes. was about, you know. And that's, that's not just Catholic Ireland. That's, no, you know, boys yeah. schools everywhere. Um, still, unfortunately. And um, yeah, so I, as as I began to understand what that meant, I thought, oh, I am gay um, and I need to be quiet about it. <laughs> That's the thing, is that you learn two things at the same time. A, truth and B, secrecy. And so, and again, that's not particular to Catholic Ireland. That's, you know, I've met so many people in Australia too, very similar um, experiences of, of recognising the truth and also recognising the need to be um, careful about disclosing. Yeah. And so tell us the story about where that led and how, when you did come out, what happened from there? Well, I came out really over the course of a decade. Um, coming out initially was was confessing it in, in kind of prayer groups. And these were ecumenical prayer groups of people of, of a variety of Christian backgrounds. Um, and in that context, um, people organised uh, exorcisms to get rid of the gay devils in me. Yeah. So can you tell us about them? Uh, sure. Well, the first one was there was somebody from California and she um, called herself an exorcist. So she gathered people around and screamed at me. And um, How old were you? 18. It was oh a, my God. a couple of days after my 18th birthday. In fact, a week after my 18th birthday. Yeah, October 21st, 1993. I have a good memory for stupid things. So you sat in the middle and there were just people around you. Who were those people? People in a part of a prayer group and religious organisation that I was affiliated with. Yeah. And so what did they do exactly? Um, read inappropriate bits from the book of Revelation and screamed at me, screamed at the demon of homosexuality, the demon of lust. So I suddenly was outed in front of lots of people. Did you know they were going to do this? No, not at all. No. So that was almost like a betrayal of your trust? I have a sonnet about it, if you want to hear it. Do you yeah, want to hear I would love to hear it. I've written a sequence of sonnets called Seven Deadly Sonnets, all about that uh, experience um, of the various exorcisms. And there was therapies that came after that too, and they were worse really, because they went on a lot longer. An exorcism is time limited. This is the first one called The Exorcism. I wish you weren't American. I wish you didn't see intrinsic evil in me. I wish you hadn't dragged my secret from me. Now I know you knew already someone squealed. I wish you didn't put your hands on me while you were screaming at the devils in me, all my homosexualities. I wish you'd never gathered people around, instructing them to pray in tongues or read from revelations or chant, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wished you'd shut up. I repeated, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wish he'd answered. I wished you dead. And I was frightened at the violence in me and the nest of demons in me. I wondered where they lived, in my semen, in the dreams I had of being kissed. Why did they breed in me, my God, my exorcist? That's very sad. Painful. Well, it's sad, it's a, but it's also angry. I love yes, the energy of it. Yes. Do you know, I wish you'd shut up. I repeated, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wish he'd answered. I wished you'd dead. You know, there was there's a there's a way within which the language itself is a protest at the the, the protestable thing that's Absolutely. going on. I wrote that twenty five years after the event. Do you know, I couldn't have uh, written it before that. Um, 
So uh, it is sad, but uh, for me, anger is a saving grace in it. Mm. No, not, not a saving grace. Anger is a saving energy. Anger is a saving power to put up a wall to say, actually, that was that was abusive. There was a lot of people in the room there who had a duty of care and they failed. Have you ever spoken to them since? Yeah, I spoke to some people who were involved and they were defensive. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Somebody said, oh, we did it for your own good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wonder when that happens and you're being a faithful Catholic and the same happens in other religions yeah. where like we and know And I should that say this wasn't a formal Catholic church. This was a prayer group. This was a kind of a peripheral, non-supervised, nobody paid by the okay. Catholic church. That's really important to yes, say. Yes. Yeah, really important to say. So, it was an ecumenical environment. In fact, not the, the, the American involved was not Catholic. In fact, she probably hated Catholics. But how did you feel about religion after that? Because regardless, mm. if ultra-religious, probably in all religions, yeah. are not accepting of that still, yeah, yeah. most of them. Yeah. Especially back in those days, it was yeah. very different to now. How I did think you of religion feel? is power, you know. I, I, there's a great ease in not believing in God that yeah. therefore I can be very interested in the, in the practice of religion. <laughs> I love the texts of, of any religion. That's I always go to the texts. And the texts are texts of power and texts of terror and texts of beauty and consolation. And you can find all kinds of ways to make any text mean whatever you want. You can interpret it for violent purposes or for redemptive purposes or for changing purposes. So I, I would be uninterested in discounting religion simply on the basis of its abuses, because you could say the same about sporting clubs. You could say the same about media organizations. You could say the same about governments. You know, the question for me is the practice of power and where where is it that you want to practice power um, and what is the quality of that? Um, yeah, that's I mean, I'm I. There's very, I, I will never work for a religious organization anymore. I, I'll be paid by them, I'll be a contractor, but I'll never, I'll never um, take on a, an employment as an employee, for instance. So that's been, a, that's been a vow I made to myself a long time yes. ago. I wouldn't put myself in a situation of being fired again. Yes. Yeah. So what were the things that they did after the exorcism that you said were worse? Well, there was, I was told, because I was living where I was working, I was working with a religious group and I was told that if I, um, that because the three exorcisms had been um, unsuccessful, that was the word used. Um, How did they know? Because they'd ask and I was frightened. I yeah. too, I mean, like when you're told here you're going to die lonely and sick of AIDS and go to hell, yeah. it's not like you think, God almighty, that's the life I want, you yeah, know. Yeah. So it's not like coming out was an option. It's not like there were any visibilities around me, you know. Um, so I was going along with it because I had I was given no options. Mm. And then they'd say, oh, that's your unwanted same sex attraction, which is a phrase that's, you know, putting it all back on me. But actually, how could you have wanted same sex attraction when you're just told here's the future? Do you know, mm. the future is diseased and death. You know, horrific ways of treating and speaking about HIV, a, a terrible marginalization and demonization of that community, um, but used in, incredibly um, insultingly as a pawn in that way. So I was living and working with a religious organization and um, they said because the exorcisms had been unsuccessful, I needed to go to um, see somebody who would help cure me psychologically. And he claimed to have authority both in religion and psychology. He had neither. He did not have qualifications, proper qualifications or supervision in, in any of those. He was an absolute off the left field, um, yeah, unsupervised person. But I didn't know that. I was 18, 19 yeah. and frightened. So I went for two years, once a week. 
he just made stuff up. You know, he was all about, you know, he, he loved thinking about where it all began. You know, causation was a huge fixation in the imagination. And that that's true in many secular environments, too. It's easy to demonize fundamentalist Christianity, to think that fundamentalist Christianity is the only thing with a fixation of what causes somebody to be gay. I've met many absolute secular atheists who, too, are homophobes, who uh, come up with all kinds of ideas about what makes a person gay and how you can prevent it. So, um, yeah, I went along to this guy for a couple of years and I, w- I had so, such little confidence, but I had confidence in language because I'd grown up um, speaking Irish and English and then learned French and sign language as well. Um, badly, I should say. <laughs> and <laughs> it's important to put that out there. Um, and so uh, one day he, he, he was asking me, he said to me, go home this week and your homework for therapy is to look at the girls who are friends in your life and decide which one of them is the prettiest and what kind of sex you'd, what kind of sex acts you'd want to have with her when you're, um, when you're cured. And I just thought, that's actually disgusting. So I went back to him the next week and went, no, no, like these are friends of mine. I'm not interested in doing that. And I said, I'm not interested in having the kind of sex you seem to want me to have. And he then said, do you know what? Um... Do you know what your problem is, Patrick? Your problem is language. Have is a selfish verb because he said, you just said about having sex. Have is a selfish verb. You shouldn't want to have sex with a woman. You should want to give sex to her. And everything fell apart for me. Absolutely everything. Because I thought you couldn't say that in Irish. You don't use, the, you don't conjugate um, sex and the, and the verb have in, the, in, in that way in Irish as you do in English. And I just thought you have made this up. Also, no verb is selfish. Verbs don't have morality. Mm. You know, like it's just, it's just a noise you make. It's ridiculous. So it was fascinating that it was language that made the whole thing fall apart. And I, I literally got up and walked out and never went back. Wow. I was frightened that I'd lose my job. But I realised the whole thing was just a big charade and I was the victim. I used to pay to go to see him. That was the thing, not much. But um, yeah, it was terrible. But the whole thing just fell apart just like that. It was an exorcism into uh, clarity, into seeing what's true. And, um, in, and so that was an experience of coming out. I was 21 maybe. And the world was suddenly much bigger and much more frightening and absolutely electric with life. And then isn't it interesting how that also taught you a lot about language and how that's obviously a huge part of what you do now. It taught me what I already knew about language. Mm. It returned me to it. Yeah. And so what have you learned about language since? Well, that language is power and that it's well, it's one of the things that's one of the things that's power and that you can you can tie people up with language and that um, it's always worthwhile asking yourself the question, is this entirely made up? And if it is made up, I I value creativity. Is it made up in the quality that's fruitful or in the quality that is imprisoning? And that clearly was a quality that was imprisoning. And then what brought you to poetry? Well, I'd always written poetry, always. Um, The Irish school system is filled with poetry from the age of Mm. five to 17. We were learning two poems off by heart every week, one in English, one in Irish. So like I, again I had never and I just went to totally ordinary schools whatever you could walk to so there was poetry was everywhere so I started writing when I was about 11 terrible poetry you know um, on scraps of paper uh, so yeah I'd been writing poetry all along and, and then especially during these exorcisms and other times like that um, you know trying to write about pain and shock and all of those awful things that's going on you know that 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 pressure that you're under when you 
think these people say they like me in the prayer group and in the religious organization I was affiliated with, you know, but yet they're saying terrible things to me. Mm. And the the profound sense of ambivalence, you feel that lovely people are doing devilish things to you. And that that's a conflicted space to be in. So poetry is a great place to <laughs> try to manifest some of your own conflicts. Yeah. How did you justify human nature? Because you obviously saw the worst of it. How did you compartmentalise that when you were quite young still? Uh, very poorly, yeah, very poorly. Um, I, I love your question, Sarah, because one of the things that all religious systems are is an anthropology. Mm. What is the human person? What is the human condition? You can get tied up in where did it start and where is it going, etc. But what's the phenomenological experience of being human? Who are we? Who are we to each other? I, I find those questions, deep, questions deeply enlivening. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I was being given multiple experiences of lovely people who could believe terrible things. Mm. And just because they believe terrible things about um, trans people, about LGB people, about whoever, you know, just because they were, did I think that that was, um, what did I think of them? Did I hate them? Were they despicable? Um, did I wish vengeance upon them? Did I think they were open or did they were the possibility of a site of change? Did they think that about me? Those were very intense, um, exhausting ways of asking that question that were not abstract. They, in a certain sense, they were they were deeply philosophical questions, but I did not experience, experience them as philosophical. I experienced them on the level of these people threatened to fire me. Um, threatened to say to me, you'll have nowhere to stay. And the job that, you know, I, I enjoyed doing mm. church-based youth work and stuff like that. It was a fulfilling belonging. And so, um, yeah, the threat of losing that from people who were on the one hand nice and on the other hand threatening, that was difficult. How do you heal from that? Um, time, distance, um, some vows, as in do not put yourself in a situation where you'd be fireable again. Um, I think, like, uh, I used to say, love the gospel and take no shit. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not sure it's about the gospel now. I'm not sure what I'd say to love, but maybe just love and take no shit. Mm. Um, and so I suppose I try to hold both. And also then not to be dick myself, you know, I'm perfectly capable of being a terrible person. A, a number of years ago, back in Melbourne, actually, I, because um, I used to live here, I gave a poetry reading at Hares and Hyenas, that magnificent queer bookshop. Um, oh, and yeah. uh, I um, was just about to start the reading and I looked up and there had been a couple of reparative therapists over the time. It wasn't just one. I looked up and um, there was one of the reparative therapists in the front row of Hares and Hyenas holding the hand of another man. And it gave me such a shock, you know. And I'd known it was perfectly clear um, during my sessions with this guy that he was, you know, a fellow struggler, as he would have called it. Um, and at the time, I thought, I do not want to engage with you. I, I don't. But at the time, I also understood that he was a victim and that had I stuck around, probably they'd have said to me, look, the curing hasn't happened, but you've been around for a while. You can help some fellas. You know, it's all about men. You know, you can help some fellas who are in their early stages of, you know, coming out of the lifestyle. So I would have been him had I stuck around a little bit longer. You know, I have yeah. a poem about that. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. It's the last one of the seven deadly sonnets. 
There's a line in Dante's Inferno when Dante gets to the ninth circle of hell and finally sees Lucifer. You're you're wondering the whole way throughout um, Dante's Inferno. What's going on? Where's the devil? Where's the devil? Like there's all kinds of punishments everywhere, but where's the devil? And at the ninth circle of hell, he finally sees the devil, Lucifer. Huge, enormous wings, frigid wing, frigid winds coming from his flapping wings. But Lucifer is frozen in a lake of his own tears up to his waist. And Dante says, oh, what a marvel it appeared to me. That's the line. And that's what I thought when I saw this reparative therapist in front of me. There's <laughs> line is, oh, what a marvel it appeared to me. There's the benefit of uh, an education in poetry. Oh, what a marvel it appeared to me. I knew it was him as soon as I saw him. He saw me too. I was curious if he'd changed. I like to believe people do eventually. Ten years since he'd made me account for what he called homosexual erections in weekly sessions he called therapy. I've got plenty of obsessions. He's not one of them anymore. All it took was time and safety. Five years? Twenty? I don't know how I made it through. When I saw him, I gave him what he said God gave me. Silence. Opportunity. Hmm. Did you talk to him when you saw him? No, I wouldn't. No, absolutely not. No interest. But I think um, seeing him made me realise the strength of, like I didn't hate him. I didn't wish him evil. I was glad to think, look, looks like you've got a partner. Lovely. Great. Mm. I wish you well. I wish you accountability. (laughs) And I wish whoever, whatever organisation you were affiliated with, um, you know, destruction. <laughs> um, but I thought I I couldn't, I yes. could not have done that. So, but it did prompt the need to think I have to turn towards these in art. So that's where the seven deadly sonnets came from, probably. Mm. Yeah. I remember when I was young, I don't know how old I was, and the first time I saw human nature acting the opposite of what it had said it was, and I remember it was this girl who had said, oh, I don't like this person, they're not nice, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw her being really nice to it, Mm. and I did not understand the concept of backstabbing Mm. because my mother is like me, very (laughs) matter-of-fact, and my father is the most ungossipy, very practical person. I never grew up like that. And I remember just being bewildered. Hold on, you said this, but then you're acting like that. How do humans do that? I don't understand that. And then it's like you move then into the world and you see a marvel of these things just kind of going on at people who are like that and then people who are not like that. And it's just interesting watching human behaviour and the things we do a lot of the time because people are wounded. Yeah. And we have ambition and we have drives and desires that take over and the unconscious, yes. you know... Um, it's com- uh, partly what, what of course, makes me, um, I try to be a forgiving person about some of those things that happened. Mm. Um, not excusing, but forgiving. Um, but I, I look to myself too and think about my own duplicity. Times in my life when I wanted one thing but said I wanted another or couldn't face the fact of my own desire or, yeah, came to something mm. with ambivalence or was untrustworthy or let a friend down, you know, whatever. And so I... I'm not saying any of that to excuse systemic failure, but I do see um, flawed people everywhere and I have been one of those flawed people. 
I want you to tell this beautiful story that you have in 2011 when you taught spirituality to a group of children and you had this gorgeous girl within the class who asked a question to you and I'll, I'll let you tell the story. So I worked as a chaplain in a Catholic retreat centre in West Belfast. And so Catholic schools would send a class of 30 kids to the retreat centre every day for a day of kind of uh, religious reflection, but in a very lighthearted way. There, there was no de- demand that any of the children um, believed it or in any way, um, but they had to have a positive experience of saying what they thought about belief, which was, I think, a very, very helpful um, framework set up by my boss, Margaret McClory. And... Um, she said to me, if, well, one thing to understand in this, because it, it deal, deals with Catholics and Protestants, in the context of Ireland, Catholic and Protestant really means British or Irish. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a crude example of this is that during what's called inappropriately the famine, um, in some places, if you went and converted to Protestantism, they'd give you soup. And so um, mm. this was a British-run soup kitchen okay. in the 1840, late 1840s. So um, there was plenty of those around the place where that would happen. And so um, now no Protestant people were starving. So it was, the opposite wasn't true. So it was Protestant-run soup kitchens would give you soup if you, um, if you converted. That isn't all of the Protestant-run soup kitchens, but enough that that's become a big thing in Ireland. If anybody's a traitor, you'll say to them, have you taken the soup? Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's a big thing. So when you understand that, you understand what that Catholic and Protestant in Ireland mean a lot to do with questions to do with survivability, with who, who is, who's meant to be here, who's in control, do you know, who has the rights to be in this island, do you know, um, etc. So uh, all that's a bit of a background, just in terms of a cultural background to what happened with this magnificent 11-year-old where she said to me, she was, I, I hope she trained as a lawyer <laughs> in the years since because she was great at argumentation. She said to me, Padraig, I've got a question for you. Answer me this. And I knew that she always set up with a premise. And I said, OK, work away. And she said, God made us, right? And that was just, she was setting out her legal mm. premise. and like, OK, fine. And God loves us, right? I was like, OK, fine, sure. <laughs> you know, that wasn't the big question. Everybody knew. And then she said, tell me this, why did God make Protestants? I was like, what? (laughs) She said, why did God make Protestants? And I went, you're going to have to tell me more about your question. And she said, they hate us and they hate him. It was extraordinary, extraordinary sectarian insight in this 11-year-old person who was born after the peace agreements. They hate us and they hate him. I mean, there's such an in-group, out-group. They hate us and him, Mm. God, meaning God, you know. So apparently, you know, Catholics and God are all part of the same group. We're all hated by Protestants. So, um, but she's not to blame for that personally. She hasn't made that up, you know. She's 11, my God. And she was a laugh. So I said to her, um, you're great at football, aren't you? I knew she was very, very good at football, soccer. And uh, she said, yeah, yeah, I love it. And I said, I know loads of Protestant people that would be thrilled to have you in their team. And she went, really? I'm like, yeah, of course, you're brilliant. Like, they they wouldn't care who, where you go to Mass. Do you go to Mass? I, I doubt if she went to Mass even, do you know. Uh, and she, there was just this sense of, I wanted to give an experience of imagination, do you yes. know, to say, look at what's possible. Um, France had just beaten Ireland in the soccer the week before. And um, 
in, in an international game. It might have been a World Cup qualifier. And the, the goal by which France had won was one where all the Irish people, all of us were saying, it was a foul, it was a foul, it was a foul. I don't know if it was or wasn't. Maybe it was just hard losers. Anyway, she then said to me, what about French people? What God made them? <laughs> so she was hilarious. I thought she was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and yes. she had this imagination of all of these different gods that made different categories of people and the war among the heavens and war, war on the earth. <laughs> a little henotheist. It's funny how what you tell kids they take very literally. Their questions are so amazing yeah. because of that. But it also makes you realise that you have to be careful about what you feed into a child's mind. Totally, of course. Yeah, of course. And she really was a, a mirror back to a society. That might not have cut, she might not have picked that up at home at all. Her parents yeah. might have been aghast had they heard her say any of that. She might have picked it up somewhere else or who knows. Um, yeah, but but in a way she was telling the truth, which is telling a truth to say that in that part of the world, in my part of the world, the north of Ireland, that there is a um that there is an impoverished imagination about the other based on deep trauma and history mm -hmm. and the way that and the way that the past is not the past. The past can be the present, you know. Um so she's telling us the truth in a certain sense. And the question then is what do we do with that truth and how do we make something else possible? What's mm. the imagination? What's the education? What's the youth work schemes? What's, you know, all of the things that, you know, many hundreds of good organisations in the north of Ireland are involved in trying to address the long legacy of British-Irish pain. What do you love about poetry? I love its creativity with language. I love that it can say something surprising. I love mm. that it can, um, in a few short words, somehow maybe give you uh, an ache of um, an ache of your own sadness or an uplifting of something. There's a great poet, Meg Carney. She's got a poem called Creed, and she one of the, and she's going through all the things she believes, and she has this lovely line in it that says, "I believe in the long, slow swoop of tongue down the lover's belly." <laughs> See, you smiled. I smiled. How magnificent. I love that line. I say that line regularly. The long, slow swoop of tongue down the lover's belly. My God, how lovely that is to say. And then there's an Irish poet, Patrick Kavanagh, who has a poem called Snail. And as part of it, there's a simple line that says, I too know the shadow ways of self. And so there's just lines like that that you can repeat to yourself like a prayer that just give you a sense of somebody else in their own lonely writing, mm -hmm. wrote something that connects to me. That person might be dead, long gone, or I'll never meet them. But somehow their words read out, reach out. I, I love that about poetry. I've heard you say poetry is prayer for you. <laughs> yes. In the sense of, I don't mean prayer as in addressed. I mean mm. prayer as where it comes from. Um, prayer um in the Hebrew tradition comes from the leb, the, the heart, the leb. And I, I love the imagination of the heart as the, the, the source of the psyche, not just the head, um, but that the heart is the source of, of thought, of discernment, of weighing things up, of, of the weight of love alongside the weight of thought. And so I, I think that poetry comes from that same place. You studied for a time around religious Jewish people. Yeah. And how did that come to be? Uh, I went into the course in London. It was utterly extraordinary. It changed my life. Totally. What was the course? What was the course? I can't quite remember. It was a course on history and religion and the overlap of them. Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Living together for a week in London. It was utterly brilliant. There's a funny story. I was out one night and I was wanting to talk away about 
about midrash and everything like that. And um, I was asking this one fella uh, sitting next to me from Jerusalem, what, you know, what about this? And he was so studied, he knew it all, you know, but he clearly was tired of my questions. <laughs> and he said to me, Patrick, when's the last time you got laid? <laughs> I said to him, it's been a long time. And he went, oh, darling, I'm taking you out. <laughs> so it was, it was a week of ex- intense learning and then a week of uh, stuff like that with him, which was magnificently, uh, you know, irreverent and, and filled with levity. But also, like at one point I was saying, oh, I'm not sure. I, I used to think this thought, but I wasn't sure if it'd be OK to ask it. Somebody said, your questions are so frightened, like ask a better question. Really? And it was a great introduction to, in a certain sense, what you might call community midrash, you know, get, taking a text and saying, come on, like bring your thought, like work it, have an opinion. And uh, that just, it changed me. And then I started to read much more in terms of the sources of Midrash and Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg and Shimon Berefrat and translators like Robert Alter. Yeah, totally changed the way I, uh, the way I read. Um, I, I don't think I would ever read. There's very, very few Christian writers who write about Hebrew Bible that I'd read. Like, why would you bother? Like, yes. I want to read a Jewish writer talking yes. about the Jewish Bible. It's funny you say that. I was on a panel it was the Holocaust Memorial Day and it was at the Holocaust Museum in Melbourne. And I was so felt so chuffed that they'd asked me to sit on this panel and talk about keeping the stories alive. And there were Holocaust survivors in the front row. It was packed. It was sold out. Hundreds of people there. And one of the guys who was an author, he said something about why we should always read the text. And this would equate to a lot of things that are firsthand. So you must read the Holocaust survivors accounts of the Holocaust, not someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone else. So it's interesting when you bring that up, how I'd never thought about that before, but it actually makes so much sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the primary source. It's really interesting. I wonder for you, what did you take out of that time that you were learning with them? What did you take out about spirituality? It affirmed to me that my deepest drive when it comes to religion was the literature of religion Mm. and that it wasn't just the literature, it was learning techniques and tools of asking questions about that literature and reading widely in in order to ask deeply. That's what it affirmed to me. And that to ask a question is not to demean a tradition, but it is to engage with it. Yes. And that there's nothing new about that. There's nothing funky or trendy or, you know, you know, modern deconstructionist about that, that the the profound engagement with the text has been around for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And that there are libraries filled with those questions that are, you know, older than any building that we've got standing mm. and that there is nothing new about asking a good question. What do you think makes a good question or what gives people the ability? And I know listening is definitely one of them to ask a good question. Sometimes I think a good question is one where where you're not interested in a yes or no outcome. Mm. Like a yes or no outcome is a very particularly limited kind of question. You know, um, a question about like, what does it mean to be human? That's an interesting question Mm. because ultimately I think it it involves the... um, It involves a a lived life in response to it. I do love the question, do you believe in God? But it depends as to the tone and the love with which the word you is said. If you is said in a hostile way or in a threatening way or in a trapping way, well then it's a very boring question. But I I love the question, do you believe in God? Because it invites invites an answer from a life, a response from a life, not an answer. 
So I, I like questions that, that open up, that uh, evoke story, uh, that evoke action alongside story and evoke the pleasure of language. Mm. Yeah. And curiosity. Yes. Uh, one of the ways of saying curiosity in Irish is to watch with wonder. And I like a good question is one where you know you don't know the answer. Mm. And so to ask somebody a question where you're thinking, what are they going to say? How delightful is that? It's so funny you say that because I grew up in the world of radio for many, many years. And they'd always say, as an interviewer, you should always ask questions that you know the answers yeah. to. And I remember when I got into <laughs> podcasting thinking... I don't want to know the answers yeah, to the yeah, question. It's interesting when you find it out and then you can ask another question from there and you're, you know, active listening. It's so old school to think that you always should know the answers to the questions. I mean, what a, that would be boring for the interviewer just sitting there. I mean, that's how I perceive that. Yeah. Yeah, it would be boring for everybody, I think. Because then otherwise, in that way, it's just the rehearsed of a predictable monologue, a predictable exactly. dialogue. Yeah. 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 Whereas you want something where you can hear surprise. Because if the interviewer in radio can be surprised, well, then the listener might yes. be too. Do you believe in God? <laughs> so I have a commitment to that question that I will always answer that question with a story from the day. Please. So let me think today, a story from today. I've been going through a difficult time lately. I've been sick and there's been some other personal things going on. And so I was um, crying in a cafe earlier on and a small bird came and I just looked at the small bird. It was uh, primarily interested in the crumbs on my plate. And I looked at it and it looked at the crumbs on my plate. And there was just a sense of grounding to look at this small animal who will only be alive a couple of years. To look at me who will be alive a few years longer than that, I hope to see things as passing. Yeah. Mm. Do you believe in God? I was hoping you asked me that question. Yes, I do believe in God. And going on to your story, I'm going through some big negotiations at the moment with some things that are very important to me. Mm. And someone who I trust wholeheartedly, I was telling them, and they looked at me and they're like, Sarah, but the universe always has your back. You know that. Whatever the outcome is, it's always for your betterment in life and it just set me back to that place of what I knew was there but I had forgotten. I do believe in God and having that belief allows me to feel calm at times where I would otherwise feel quite nervous and on edge and having that connection has ultimately changed my life. What I like about that question is that it's in a certain sense it's just a set of noises we make and it opens up the question about experiences of life. What mm. holds you? What grounds you? What displaces you? Um, what happened today? What was a surprise? You know, uh, I, I like that question, provided it can be answered with a story of your life. Yes. Yeah. And I think as well, when you open people up and allow them to be vulnerable in a safe space, mm. then you're always going to get some kind of beauty that <laughs> comes out. Mm. And I think that is a very beautiful thing for yeah. everyone to witness. Yeah. Here's another answer to it, which isn't from today, it's from last week. Um, I stayed with some friends in Mount Albert for uh, 10 days my, just when I got here. And uh, their son, who's 20, Jotham, is um, a budding poet. I'd given him, a, uh, he'd given him a notebook about five years ago. And now he's got seven notebooks filled with mm. lyrics and uh, ideas and sketches. He's brilliant. And so he, I said, come on, let's go to a poetry event. So we went to a poetry event in the CBD. And it was great, absolutely magnificent. We went up to this particular poet and chatted to him afterwards. 
And as we were leaving, Jotham said, um, do you want to go dancing to George the Busker? I was like, who's George the Busker? <laughs> the question in a certain sense was clear, but I didn't know who George the Busker was. So I was like, oh, sure, let's go. So we walked down to Swanson Street and um, uh, there, sure enough, there's George the Busker, who's absolutely brilliant, wow. doing all the rock and roll stuff, calling people out, come on, dance. Why aren't you dancing? Why aren't you dancing? Come on. So Jotham shucked off his winter coat and got out there <laughs> and started to dance. So I took a few photos and then I went out and joined him. And that's an answer too. It's absolutely magnificent. Me 47, him 20, boogieing away on <laughs> Swanson Street. Uh, alive with language and poetry and good rock and roll and George the Busker's brilliance everybody should praise and go along and dance to George the Busker You find God in all the most unique places don't you? Well I'm not sure yeah I'm not sure that God is there that's that's the thing for me is that the question about do you believe in God isn't about believing in God it's about where is life Mm. where is life happening and there was a lot of life happening and boogieing on Swanson Street to George the Busker with Jotham Mm. It's interesting the journey of life. And I wonder for you, how you perceive that. Like, why do you think that we come onto this earth? Why do we come down to this earth? Um, times of times of support really show us what matters, don't they? Um, I, I don't have any answer to the why, but I know that something that helps is when people come alongside each other, you mm. know, um, to think of times when um, you know, there's flooding in a city, for instance, and communities come around each other and support mm. each other and offer each other help. To think of times where um, in Ukraine, when people are seeking to support in whatever way they can, and then down to the very personal, you know, to think of times, you know, friends of mine, various friends of mine have been through terrible times of grief over the last while. And to just see communities of friends who gather around. And then similarly, you know, just somebody that sends a text message to say, hey, um, you're on my mind. Mm. But um, it, it isn't a satisfactory answer, but it's it's the only thing I can turn to is that from the small to the large, those moments where somebody gets in touch and says, um, I can't do much, but I can do this. Um, and the much, it can be one thing or another, you know, it can be a huge gesture, it can be just a text, that those, I think, lend a quality of experience of love to a life. And... That's all I've got. Mm. But it's enough. Yes. You've got a beautiful poem, The Facts of Life, and I'd love you to read it to us. The Facts of Life. That you were born and you will die. That you will sometimes love enough and sometimes not. That you will lie, if only to yourself. That you will get tired. That you will learn most from the situations you did not choose that there will be some things that move you more than you can say, that you will live, that you must be loved, that you will avoid questions most urgently in need of your attention, that you began as the fusion of a sperm and an egg of two people who once were strangers and may well still be, that life isn't fair, that life is sometimes good and sometimes even better than good, that life is often not so good, that life is real. And if you can survive it, well, survive it well, with love and art and meaning given where meaning's scarce, that you will learn to live with regret, that you will learn to live with respect, that the structures that constrain you, 
may not be permanently constraining, that you will probably be okay, that you must accept change before you die, but you'll die anyway, so you might as well live and you might as well love. You might as well love. You might as well love. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. What made you write that? I saw the phrase Facts of Life written um, in a book somewhere uh, and it just struck me because it was in an unexpected list of book titles. Um, and in, in so much conflict resolution, what happens when you get parties to a conflict is you're trying to initially establish the facts, what happened, you know, and facts and perceptions. Mm. And are you disagreeing about the same thing? Often, you know, you can spend a very long time on fact, perception, and are you disagreeing on the same thing? And if it's possible for some clarity to be brought out of there, sometimes people come away thinking, oh, actually, things have de-escalated yes. a bit because I've suddenly realised you're you're coming with this and I'm actually coming with this. We're disagreeing about different things. And suddenly you can maybe see a way forward or it at least allows you to begin to see some things, um, issues begin to emerge. And so the, the question as to what's a fact, it comes up an enormous amount when you're a conflict resolution person. <laughs> you're constantly dealing with people saying, and the fact is here and the fact here and the fact, you know, all of that. So I was thinking, well, what are some facts that I'd want to put down? And now they're poetic, you know, you were born and you'll die. Some of them are obvious, you know, you'll ask questions most urgently in need of your attention. I, I don't know if that's always true. I, th I think it probably is. Um, but then things like you'll probably be OK. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to put some things in there, uh, some some murky facts, some complicated ones. I read this in a school in New York City uh, um, a number of years ago and a 15 year old at the end of it said, you repeated, you might as well love three times at the end. Who are you trying to convince? What a great question. Mm. My God. <laughs> and I said, um, maybe me. Yeah. I'm not sure. I've thought about her question ever since. It was magnificent. I saw her teacher actually just last year and I said to the teacher, um, I still uh, think about her question. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think it's an exquisite poem and it's interesting to hear the reasoning behind why poets put poems together. Yeah, or where it landed from. Yeah. yeah. And how that they can have such a strong resonance for the person listening as well. Yeah, yeah. This poem has gone much farther than I ever thought it would. Do you know, it, it, I, didn't, I didn't think it was that strong a poem, to be honest. Um, but it's the one that I get messages from all the time, from people saying we read it at a funeral or we read it at a wedding or we read it at a dedication of life or, you know, uh, turn to it in this period of time. The people have made it their own. It's lovely. It's very moving that people would do that. I think things land, and I've noticed this even with podcast episodes, is when they're relatable. <laughs> yeah. You know, and when yeah. someone can relate to mm. what you're talking about and that poem is full yeah. of that, yeah. that they feel that there's like, an affinity there towards it. It pulls you in yeah. because you know that there are some lines in that poem, if not all of them, that will be your experience in life as well. Hmm. It's a woman I met who came on a retreat that I ran and she was very, very ill. She was young, near the end of her life. And um, she loved this poem and she came, she told me she wanted to meet me before she died. And a number of months later, I got a message from her spouse saying that she had unfortunately died and could they read this at the funeral? I was like, why are you asking me? Mm. Like, you can do what you want at the funeral. My God, you can change the poem. Anyway, but there was something about the quality of his letter telling, you know, I, I, so I wrote back to him and said, of course you can, God almighty. And um, do you want a cup of tea? Because there was something, he, he told me a bit about himself. 
And so he is a dear friend now. You know, we see each other regularly. Yeah, we praise her when we meet up and tea and cake late night in New York. Um, Yeah, I love him. So uh, this poem has brought me together. Yeah, and and her because she wanted she had written that she wanted it read at her funeral, and it's um, his has been a a lovely friendship. How nice is that? Yeah, it's beautiful. So (laughs) I'd love to know. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given? Um, when I moved to Melbourne in 1999, a good friend of mine, Siobhan, back in Ireland, said to me, Padraig, you're a bit screwed up. So, like, you need some proper therapy. So, <laughs> she's a good friend, so she can say that. And, um, yeah, I went and got some, got some proper therapy uh, for three years when I lived here. Oh, wow. And it was very, very beneficial. Studley Park Road in Kew. Oh. Yeah, I got to know the 109 tram well. And um, yeah, it was a very, very helpful period of time, lonely and difficult. And, you know, felt like a bit of a, you know, at that stage, I knew nobody else that was in therapy. You know, yes. it wasn't kind of a spoken about thing. Of course, I'm sure loads of people yes. were. My God, there's plenty of therapists then too. But it was, um, that was a very, very helpful piece of advice. And not just because I was a screw up, um, but actually because what it, wa- what it was, it gave me a sense of, um, I can ask questions, mm. you know, and how interesting is this? So it, it was a, an invitation to the imagination and to the intellect. That was a really good um, piece of advice. What's something you wish for yourself? To be generous. I, I like being generous. Yeah. And I, I want to... Yeah, I want to have a quality of my own experience that I can forget myself and be generous. Mm. Yeah, that's what I like. What's your greatest hope for society today? Mm. For increased understanding. I, I do think that understanding can can allow all kinds of hostilities to be put into their place. We've all got hostilities. I've got plenty, you know, I, but the invitation is to learn how to hold my everyday hatreds in a way where I'm not making the world a hateful place. Mm. So I don't want to get rid of my own hatreds. That's probably where my poems come from. I'm filled with conflict. I'm fine with that. But I want to find a way to hold my own everyday hatreds in a way where I'm not making the world more hostile. And my my hope would be that that could be a hope for society, that we could Mm. do that. Do you have a favourite prayer or saying or phrase, (laughs) mantra? Um, Yeah, I do. It's a line from the poem by Patrick Kavanagh. And the poem is called Having Confessed. And the line says, lie at the heart of the emotion. Time has its own work to do. I Mm. think about that line every single day. Lie at the heart of the emotion. Time has its own work to do. Mm. I wanted to ask you actually earlier on, did you do that confession? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find that to be beneficial? I mean, when you're seven, that's when you make your first holy confession, as we would have called it then. Um... Uh, it's just a bit of a joke, you know, a, a frightening joke in a certain sense. You know, um, it was never abusive in for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was never any threat of any situation at that stage. There was once later on. Um, uh, well, one of the things that is beneficial, I suppose, is having a tradition that allows space for being able to speak about the parts of you that are difficult yes. to contain. And I think whatever that is and that can be therapy that can be a best friend there's all kinds of phone lines that you can phone and leave something in the and the the mm. recording is quashed apparently the next day you know post secret that amazing project this um 
They're online everywhere. People just make a postcard and decorate it with a secret that they can't contain anymore, mm. an anonymous postcard. So one of the things that confession knows on the broader level is that we've all got things that are difficult to contain, mm. the unbearable within us. And the question is, is are there trustable places where the unbearable can be born, either by yourself or alongside someone else? Mm. And it's the trustable nature of it for me. And does it work? Um, uh, confession didn't work for me and I would have no interest in it um, but I do know some other people who've had very very positive experiences and trustable experiences of confession so I wouldn't want to demonise it it's been around for a long time and I think probably for a lot of people there has been a way within which it has been something of benefit um, but it's it's uh, for me having a variety of options and choosing the most trustworthy of mm. them is the best Have you had a mystical experience that you could tell us? I did have a mystical experience once. Um, <laughs> I was I was at this chapel, and um, uh, the reparative therapist, the main one, mm. who was not in any way a closeted gay man. This man was as straight as you can get. I just think he liked power. Um, he uh, he was there, uh, and I was sitting in this chapel, and then I saw him. And I was so frightened and I was absolutely, I was very young. I was 22, maybe 23. I was so under the thumb of religion. It didn't occur to me that <laughs> I could move away from it, you know. Um, and I was just so burdened. And like that, I was somewhere else. And I was in a deep, quiet cave filled with a soft grey light. There was the sound of water somewhere nearby. And I could tell from the sound that it was clear water. And in my in my body, in my in my chest, I could feel a profound sense of peace and ease. Mm. And I, I, I that experience might have lasted half a second, but it it absolutely um, nurtured what's possible. Meister Eckhart, the great German mystic, said there is a place in the soul where neither time nor God nor any created thing can touch. Mm. And I feel like I got there just mm. that once. And that's enough. I have a poem about it, actually. I'd love to hear it. The poem is called Abomination. <laughs> forgiveness? You can take it if you want it. Most days I practice forgetting the hold you once had on me. Mostly it works, most days. There is a cave I got to once while shaking in a corner of your chapel. When I found myself there, I forgot I was in your lair. The cave came to me and with me. I make my way there from time to time. It comes with no demand. I enter through the gate that has a sign that once said, danger. Beautiful. <laughs> What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness. I think a life of generosity, to be planted where you are, whatever that is, and to um, that the relationships that you have, um, that might be with one person, that might be with many, um, are nurtured by generosity mm. and that there is reciprocality and ex change and interest, uh, those things, that to my mind symbolises a life of greatness. I'd love for you to leave us with a poem of yours. Do you have a poem that's very meaningful to you that you would like to uh, read? Yes. There's a poem called, well, it's called How to Belong, but belong is crossed out. 
and then it says how to be alone. It all begins with knowing nothing lasts forever. So you might as well start packing now. In the meantime, practice being alive. There will be a party where you'll feel like nobody's paying you attention. And there will be a party where attention's all you'll get. What you need to do is to remember to talk to yourself between these parties. And again, there will be a day, a decade, where you won't fit in with your body, even though you're in the only body you're in. You need to control your habit of forgetting to breathe. Remember when you were younger and you practiced kissing on your arm? You were onto something then. Sometimes harm knows its own healing. Comfort knows its own intelligence. Kindness too, it needs no reason. There is a you telling you another story of you. Listen to her. Where do you feel anxiety in your body? The chest, the fist, the dream before waking, the head that feels like it's at the top of the swing or the clutch of gut like falling and falling and falling and falling. It knows something. You're dying. Try to stay alive. For now, touch yourself. I'm serious. Touch yourself. Take your hand and place your hand someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. You belong here. Podrick Otuma, thank you for the beautiful conversation today and your exquisite words. (laughs) Sarah, thank you for the questions and the conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at saragrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.